Amen. Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 4, as we continue our journey through this letter to Christian exiles. This morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our passage this morning is really interesting. And it's interesting because if you heard, most of it sounds like pretty straightforward stuff. Fairly normal Christian behavior, right? You've got praying, loving, serving, nothing unusual there. But the part that stands out, and I guess your ears perked up at, is the very first part of verse 7. There Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And what makes the passage even more interesting, other than the fact that it's talking about the end, is the word that comes right after that phrase. Therefore. So in other words, Peter's saying, listen, the end is near, so here's how you should live. Now when we think about the end times or the last days, There are two wrong ways that people often respond. They can either become fanatical or flippant. So on the one hand, some people hear the truth that the end is near and they just go crazy. They become fanatical. Some join cults. Some become doomsday preppers, storing up supplies for this apocalypse. Some people obsessively watch the news and see everything that's going on as a sign of some end-time event. Some go so far as to predict exactly when this end will come. Take, for instance, Harold Camping, who predicted the world would end on September 6, 1994. I'm just going to let you know, it didn't. And when it didn't, he said, oh, my bad. He then said September 29th, and then October 2nd, and then May 21st, 2011, and then October 21st, 2011. So apparently, what I'm gleaning from Harold Camping is predicting the end of the world is the one thing you're allowed to be wrong at more often than predicting the weather. Now, some people become fanatical. But on the other hand, many others hear that the end is near, And they simply become flippant. 
they dismiss it as, that's crazy talk. That's just your religious fairy tale. Even in Peter's day, he warned us in his second letter that there would be scoffers who would say, where's the promise of his coming? You say Jesus is coming back, where is he? And many today would dismiss the idea that the end is near in the same exact way. Others are flipping about the end being near by just never thinking about it. It has no real impact on their lives. They think life will just go on forever just as it is. And often, even we as Christians can fall into this, can't we? We know Jesus is coming back. We, we just sang it. One day the king will return for his own. We know that, and we know it could be any time, but how much influence does that actually have on our day-to-day living? Yet as Peter writes to these exiled Christians, he wants them to remember that the end is near and he wants it to have a different impact on them. He doesn't want them to become fanatical. He doesn't want them to be flippant. Instead, he wants to motivate them to be focused and faithful. In fact, whenever the Bible talks about the last days, it always talks in this way. Nowhere does the Bible suggest that we should guess the dates or make charts. It never tells us the end is near, so quit your jobs or build bunkers. And it definitely never says, well, since the end is near, live it up in as much sin as you can now because time is short. That's how the unbelievers were living last week in verse 3. Instead, the Bible over and over again says, because the end is near and Jesus is coming back, We should live lives of holiness and faithfulness. Peter himself tells us this in 2 Peter 3. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So that's the kind of response he wants us to have. But we also need to be clear about what Peter means here when he says the end of all things is at hand. Because it can be a little confusing, can't it, to read that and realize that he said the end is at hand almost 2,000 years ago. So was Peter wrong? Or is he just misunderstanding the timeline? No. He was speaking about time the way Scripture does. I've got a little slide here to try to help us walk through this. If you could throw up that timeline one. There we go. The Bible talks in general about two ages, this age and the age to come. Now this age, you see that there's an overlap because the age to come broke in when Jesus came to earth. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said when he arrived. So at the incarnation, the kingdom arrived and yet it's not fully here. The age to come has not fully begun. And it won't until Christ's return. But in between those two, where those striped lines are, that's where we live. Between the time Christ came and when he comes again. And the Bible calls that era the end or the last days. In fact, listen to a couple ways the Bible talks about the period what we live in now. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So end of the ages. Hebrews 1, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And even Peter, earlier in the letter, I don't know if you remember this, in chapter 1, talking about Jesus as he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was manifested in the last times for the sake of you. So different phrases, you heard the end of the ages, these last days, in the last times. Here Peter says the end of all things. All of them are saying that's when we're talking about. It's called the end of all things because it's the last stage in God's grand redemptive plan before Jesus comes back to make all things new. So we don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know the end is at hand. And Peter here wants us to live with that end in mind. Not by being fanatical, not by being flippant, but by being focused and faithful. So, how should we live when the end is near? Here's our outline this morning. Four things he tells us. Put them simply, think clearly, love earnestly, host eagerly, and serve faithfully. One of the things I hope you'll see is that in some ways these will feel very mundane. There's nothing crazy, nothing exotic. He says, live like Christians because the end is near. So let's look at the first way Peter calls us to live in light of the end. Look at verse 7 again. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, those two words, there's not a lot of difference in them. They're very related. And they both have to do with being able to think clearly, to see things as they really are. The first word is used when Jesus cast the demons out of the demon-possessed man, the one with legion. That man, he'd, he'd been out of control. He'd been hurting himself, just acting crazy. But after he met Jesus... The people came back to find the man, it says, clothed and in his right mind. That's that word there for self-control. It's in his right mind. So now Peter's saying, listen, Jesus is coming back. And because he is and because the end is near, we too should be in our right minds. We shouldn't be out of control. We shouldn't be living for the human passions we saw up in verse 3. Because when we live for the same goals and pleasures as unbelievers around us, we're just as crazy as the demoniac was. When the world says, you do you, live your truth, follow your heart, if we did that, we would be out of our minds. Instead, if we've encountered Jesus, we are to be in our right minds. We should be self-controlled. And Paul helps us think about this word from a different angle. So you've got on one hand this idea of being in your right mind. But Paul has another angle. He uses the word in Romans 12, 3. He says, A person should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. In other words, Paul's saying, see things the way they truly are. Don't think that like, oh yeah, I, I'm way up here, I'm this good. He says, no, no, no. See yourself for who you really are. Don't be deceived into a distorted view of reality. And that connects with the second word there, that sober-minded. We saw this word back in chapter 1 in 1.13. 1 
There Peter said, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first of all, you notice again, there's a connection between Jesus is coming back, so be sober-minded. Now we talked in chapter 1 about how that picture of being sober-minded is actually really helpful. For like, what, what does it mean? Well, it helps us because we know what the opposite of sober is, right? Peter's saying again that because the end is near and Jesus is coming back, we need to abstain from the world's intoxicating hopes and ways of living. When we drink in too much of the world's ways of thinking and living, we get drunk and our spiritual vision gets blurry. Right and wrong start to get a little fuzzy. We can't see things clearly. We grow dull to the reality that this world is not our home. We lose our focus on the reality that we belong to Christ and that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and he'll take us to be with him forever. We grow numb to the truth that no matter how hard and painful life may be now, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. They will be beyond all comparison. They will be worth it. We've grown numb to the fact that we will hear our God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And every tear we've cried will be wiped and death shall be no more and pain will be a thing of the past and we will be forever with the Lord. Peter's telling us because of those glorious realities, he says those glorious realities, they're meant to be like a strong black cup of coffee to sober us up out of our intoxication with the world, to clear the cobwebs and the fog out of our head and help us think clearly and see reality rightly, to remember that life is short and eternity will be glorious to remember why we're here and how to make sense and make the most of the days God gives us. And did you notice what the purpose of this sober-minded thinking is? We might assume it's decision-making or to to make plans, but what does Peter say? We are to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. I love how one pastor put it. He said, This this makes sense because if your mind is in touch with reality, you will pray. It's as simple as that. If you are aware and cognizant of the fact that there is an all-powerful and good God who is for you and not against you in Jesus, and he said, I will give you all things graciously because I gave you my son, why would we not pray? So why would we pray? Because we see how good God is we'll realize how much we need God to keep us faithful to the end, to move in power in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our city, in our neighborhoods, and in the world. You want a great way to apply this? Come tonight. Come tonight to our prayer gathering. Put this into practice. Because you see reality rightly, come pray. We don't want to be hearers and doers and say, that's great, I'm going to put on my to-do list, pray, do it today. You're invited and encouraged to come as we seek God together. So chapel, the first thing Peter wants us to see is don't let the pleasures of this life 
cloud your mind and impair your view of reality. Be self-controlled and sober-minded because the end of all things is at hand. That's our first one. Now look at verse 8 to see the next way we are to live in light of the end. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I've probably spent the most time thinking about this verse this week because this verse, this little verse, is a treasure trove of love. So I'm going to just try to pull out a few nuggets out of this treasure trove and show you how rich this verse is. First, did you notice the priority of love? It says, above all. Above all. Is that what you would have guessed? Jesus is coming back and the end of all things is at hand. So above all else, love one another. I would not have guessed it. When you say, so go evangelize the entire world. Go, go do something great for God. He says, because the end is near, you guys love one another. Above everything else. And I just want to let the significance of that land on you. That God doesn't make us guess what is most important. He puts in the Bible above all. And it's not the only place. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3. I want you to listen to this list of how we should treat each other. Just listen to these things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now that's a list, those are really important and critical ways for the church to treat one another. Can we agree on that? But Paul goes on and he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, love. Second, or First Corinthians tells us if, if we have amazing gifts, if we have strong faith, and we make great sacrifices for the Lord, but we don't have love? We're just noisy gongs. We are nothing, it says. Love for one another is the defining mark of the church. It's how we show we belong to him. So above all, we are to love one another. Next, I want to notice not just the priority, but notice the endurance of this love. He says, keep loving one another. Peter knows that they're already doing it. He says, he's looking at this church saying, you guys are already loving each other, but keep going. Don't stop. He says this because he knows there will be many temptations to stop loving each other. We will offend each other and we will be offended by each other. There will be misunderstandings there will be hurt feelings, and there will be disappointed expectations. Yet in spite of all that, we are called to keep loving one another. Because our love for each other is not to be delicate and fragile, easily broken. It's meant to be durable and lasting. And notice not only the endurance of our love, but the intensity. 
We are to keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, put your heart into it. This kind of love isn't half-hearted or weak. This isn't mere acquaintance. Loving this way takes work. It takes time spent with one another. If you keep yourself at a distance from others, you don't really let others get too close, if you neglect spending time with your church family, friends, the reality is it's going to be really hard for you to love earnestly. There's just no way around it. I used this illustration the other night. We had a membership class. And I, I think this illustration helps me at least. I hope it helps you. Is A lot of times you hear people talk about having work friends, right? What's a work friend? A work friend is somebody that at your job, you talk with them, maybe you share jokes by the proverbial water cooler, even though we don't have water coolers anymore, I think. You like hang out there, but then if somebody ever asks you, oh, so like you guys ever hang out outside of work, you'd be like, what? No, that's, that'd be weird. Like they're, they're my work friends, not my friends. They're my work friends. And sometimes I'm afraid that we can think the same way about church friends people that we can be really friendly with on Sunday. We see them every week, we say hi, but they're like, do you guys ever spend time outside of church? They're like, what? No, they're my church friends. That would be strange. So Peter's saying here, because the end is near, let's not be church friends. Let's spend our time with our brothers and sisters, building them up and enjoying fellowship with them. And I know many of you are already doing this, and I praise God. And because you're already doing it with Peter, that's why I say keep loving one another earnestly. And why does Peter call us to love that way? Well, look at verse 8. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, clearly this doesn't mean that our love for one another takes away our sins against God. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus can do that. So what does it mean? It means that when we keep loving each other this way, enduringly and earnestly, that kind of love will cover our offenses against each other that would destroy our community. When someone sins against us, we cover it in love. And that could mean a couple different things. On one hand, it might mean simply overlooking what they did against you. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Just because someone does something that offends us or hurts us, we don't have to point it out. We don't need to make a big deal about it. Instead, we can choose not to bring it up not to dwell on it, and not let it grow into bitterness. We are to be not easily offended. In fact, I'd say in the church, we call all of us to have thick skin and tender hearts. Don't let things get to you so easily, but be very gentle and gracious with others. Thick skins, tender hearts. So that's one way to cover offenses in love, is to overlook them. But we all know that sometimes that's just not possible. Sometimes sin needs to actually be dealt with. James 5.19 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Same exact phrase. So in that instance, this sin wasn't overlooked, but dealt with in love. Either way, whether it's overlooking the offense or gently dealing with it, in both cases, we are to forgive each other. You say, yeah, I did that, but then they did it again. Okay, but but what if they do it again? How many times do I need to forgive my brother? That's what Peter asked, right? So Peter knows what he's talking about. He said, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive him? Like, I don't know, something crazy, seven times? And Jesus just smiles at Peter and says, 77 times. Not because you're supposed to have a little counter and make sure that when you get to 77, you don't have to forgive him anymore. The point is that as many times as it takes, you are to forgive one another. And this kind of love, friends, this is what protects our unity. This is what protects our community together. It's what makes us look different and stand out from the world. Because when something happens between us, unlike the world, we can overlook it and we can forgive it. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And this is what Peter has in mind. This is where he's getting this imagery. I'll say that again. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And I think this is helpful because we can see what it means for love to cover an offense by comparing it to what hate does in that verse. Picture it like this. The picture I have is of an ember, a glowing ember in the smoldering fire. You guys have seen this, right? The fire's died down, but there's this one glowing ember. Now, that would be like an offense. Okay, you with me so far? The the offense is this glowing ember. Now, hate, hate sees that glowing ember, and what does it do? It starts poking, stirring up the fire, stoking it, blowing on it making the fire take, take life and burn brighter and hotter. That's what hatred does. It seizes on any little offense and says, how can I get it going? Love, on the other hand, is like a pile of dirt that just covers and smothers that glowing ember before it can grow into a flame. Peter says that's how we're called to love each other. When we're offended, because we will be offended, let's cover it in love. Be eager to overlook and be quick to forgive. Let's love, let's keep loving one another earnestly. Okay, verse 9 then, we see one practical way we show this earnest love. Look there. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love this one because, in other words, Peter's saying, because the end is near, have each other over for dinner. How many of you have ever said that? Because we're in the last days, open your home and welcome one another. See, we all know, like, even if we can't explain it all, we know that there's something different and something powerful about sitting at someone's dining room table instead of sitting with that same person at a restaurant. There's something different that happens when you share a cup of coffee on the back porch 
and not at Starbucks. Welcoming someone into our home is welcoming them into our lives. We let them get a little closer to, to come in and see more of who we are. And hospitality like this has always been a strategic and beautiful part of the Christian life. Back in Peter's time, it would have been critical to the mission of the church because as the gospel was spreading to these new places, there were no Holiday Inn Expresses. Often, as believers traveled between towns, think of how many letters there are in the New Testament. Somebody carried those letters. And so when this person carrying a letter would get there, there was no hotel necessarily for them to check into. So the only place to stay, at least safe and reliable place to stay, was with other Christians. On top of that, not only were there no hotels, but there were no church buildings. Instead, most churches met in people's homes. So if people didn't open up their homes, the church couldn't gather. But what I want you to see is just because now we do have hotels, we do have church buildings, it doesn't change the central role of hospitality in the life of the church. God intends our homes to be the place where earnest love for each other is grown and fostered. A place where fellowship happens over meals. A place where we weep together over sorrows and celebrate together over joys. A place where we share life and encourage one another in our walks with the Lord. A place where we get to welcome one another as God and Christ welcomed us. See, hospitality is really us imitating God. God is the one who created a world for us. And then he welcomed us into it and he provided us with food. Right? It's one of the first things he did in the garden. Is, I've given you every tree that's good for food. Not only that, as Israel wandered in the wilderness, God is one who fed his people on a daily basis with manna. Then when they get to the land, he brings them into the land he's prepared for them. This land that's flowing with milk and honey, making sure that they have bountiful food and drink. He's the one who invites us in Isaiah 55 saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come by and eat. Jesus is the host in Psalm 23 that prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies and welcomes us to dwell in his house forever. Jesus is the one who offers himself as the bread of life and the living water. And now he invites us to sit at his table. And right now, this moment, do you know what Jesus is up to? He's preparing a place for you. He's getting ready to host. And when he comes back, guess what we'll be welcomed to? A feast that he's prepared. So because God is like that, Peter calls us to show hospitality to one another. Now, often people think they can't be hospitable because they say, well, my house isn't big enough, or I live in an apartment, or things are a mess. I mean, we've got little kids. It's always a mess. Or I can't cook very well. But that's not the point of hospitality. You don't need an impressive home. You don't need a fancy meal. The point of hospitality is not to show off what you have, but to share what you have. However much and however little, simply share. 
so anyone can be hospitable. So let me encourage you as we head into summer. Summer's a great time to develop some new habits, some new rhythms. So I want you to think, how can you be hospitable this summer? Who in the church can you have over to get to know better? Somebody maybe you've had light conversation with, you're like, I don't really know a lot about them. Who can you have over? Who can you have over just to encourage? Just so you just want to be a blessing to them. And think through different categories of people. If you're married, what singles can you invite over? Singles? How can you be a blessing to families with kids? If you're younger, which of our seniors can you have over for dinner? Seniors, what young people can you have over? There's all kinds of opportunities for us to practice hospitality. Now, I don't want you to miss the last two words in verse 9, because these are important. Peter says, show this hospitality without grumbling. It's almost as though Peter kind of knows what we're like, isn't it? Because it's easy to complain or grumble about hosting other people. I mean, let's be real. It takes time. It probably costs money to buy food. It might be inconvenient. It's going to take work to get it ready, and then you got to clean up. And kids often break things. At least my kids do. So with all that, wouldn't we be tempted to grumble? Say, yeah, all right, fine, pastor. I'll have people over, like, do my Christian duty. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to show hospitality to one another eagerly, not begrudgingly. Don't grumble about what a hassle it is. Instead, welcome one another gladly because the end is at hand. So think clearly, love earnestly, and host eagerly. And the fourth way Peter calls us to live in light of the end is to serve faithfully. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Okay, a few things to note. First, notice that every believer has a gift. You just catch that? It says, as each has received a gift. So there are ways that God has equipped each and every Christian to serve, without exception. Second, notice that these are gifts. Gifts, that means they're given freely. In fact, the word here is related to the word grace, because that's what all gifts are. They're God's grace at work within you. They're not something we can boast about. I have this ability as though I have some innate thing worth boasting about. He said, no, 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 you've been given that as a gift. And then notice that the grace given is different for different people. That's why Peter calls it God's varied grace. It's the same word we saw back in chapter 1, verse 7, of uh, when you encounter various trials. It's almost like this uh, multifaceted. It's almost, think of it like a kaleidoscope. When you look through, there's all these different colors and shapes and things. That's what he says, God's grace is like that as he distributes gifts among his people. It's okay, so God gives grace, gives gifts of grace to his people. Every Christian has one. We have many different kinds of them. 
So what are we to do with them? Use them. That's what Peter says. If you have it, use it. Don't neglect the gift God has given you. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of helping, help. Whatever gift you have, put it to use. And what are we to use it for? To serve one another. The reason God has given us gifts is not simply for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the church. God has given us different gifts so that you and I need each other. Because none of us has all the gifts. None of us can do it all. But collectively, God provides all the gifts we need through one another. So every single member has an important part to play in the church. So use your gifts to serve one another. Peter says we're to do this as stewards of God's very grace. What that means is that we've been entrusted with these gifts to use them the way the owner intends. We have a responsibility to use what God has given us to build up his body. In verse 11, then Peter, he just gives us two very broad categories of gifts. That's all he's doing. Speaking and serving. And these two categories, these are like two buckets that you could fill up with all kinds of stuff. Speaking gifts could include things like preaching, teaching kids Sunday school, encouraging other believers, discipling, singing in corporate worship, evangelizing, counseling, and so many others. Serving could be things like making a meal, giving a ride, serving on the tech team or in the nursery, planting flowers, showing generosity, visiting an older saint. There's almost no end of things you could put under the serving. But Peter's emphasis here, he doesn't want to get bogged down in enumerating them or listing them out because he's not focusing on what we do. Instead, he wants to focus on how we do it and why. He says, if you speak in whatever manner, do it as one who speaks the oracles or literally the words of God. If you serve, serve by the strength that God supplies. The point is that as you use your gifts, don't rely on your own ability or your own strength, but on God. We speak and serve in a way that shows the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We use our gifts to serve one another, and yet we say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And why? Why do we serve one another that way? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. That's what we're after. God gives the gifts. He gives the words. He gives the strength. So he gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. We serve one another to display how great and how good Jesus is. And as Peter considers this, look at him. He, he can't help but worship. He bursts out in this doxology at the end of verse 11. He says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's saying to Jesus belong this glory and dominion. He is both glorious and he is reigning. Christ our king is ruling over all and worthy of all of our worship. Why? 
Because Jesus kept the end in sight and prayed sober-mindedly. As he faced the horrors of God's wrath in our place for our sins, he prayed in the garden, Father, remove this cup from me if possible, and yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus loved us earnestly, and he gave himself for us to cover our sins once and for all. He covered our sin not by overlooking it, but by dying for it. His blood covered our sin completely. And his love for us is steadfast. And nothing in all creation can ever separate us from it. And after Jesus died for our sins, he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now in heaven, preparing a place for us as an eager host. And until he comes, he welcomes us to his table to commune with him together. And we can only come to this table because he served us in the strength that God supplied. As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, he spoke not on his own authority, but the words that his father gave him. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did this perfectly and now empowers us so that we can follow in his steps. Friends, Jesus died and rose again to make us his church. And because our king is coming back, and because the end is near, how should we live as his church? We should think clearly. We should love earnestly. We should host eagerly. And we should serve faithfully. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your son, we do thank you that he did this perfectly in our place. Thank you that now as we move to the table, we celebrate the fact that we can come to you through his body and blood. Because he died to pay our debts, we can now sit at your table as children, as heirs. Lord, while now we just have these little morsels and symbols of juice, we know that they anticipate and look forward to a great feast one day where we will dwell in your house forever and you will welcome us in and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter, come on in, into the joy of your master. And so God, as we take this supper together, would you help us to be mindful of what these things point us to? Help us both look back in gratitude, thankful that Jesus died in our place so that we could be part of your family, so that our sins could be forgiven. But help us also to look forward with hope and eagerness to the welcome that awaits us. So we ask that you would do those things in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.